2: There's a saying, nature abhors a vacuum. It's attributed to Aristotle and roughly means that empty spaces will be filled by something because unfilled spaces simply don't exist. I mean, to take an example, even the depths of space aren't entirely empty. This aphorism applies to information about threats, too. While science searches for answers about the nature and behavior of the coronavirus, a whole bunch of stuff fills the information void in the meantime misinformation, huckster cures, your uncle's friend's brother's story about what they're not telling you that begins with, I heard that. (music) Yes, indeed, nature abhors a vacuum, but conspiracy theorists seem to love it. See, this entire operation is being funded by the profits from the Medellin drug cartel that's specifically set up by the CIA to handle large sums of money being funneled into this project. Keep it on your hat. I'm Seth Chostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode of our regular look at critical thinking, the misinformation, disinformation, false cures, and conspiracy theories being cooked up during this pandemic, how to spot them, and how they interfere with our ability to safely navigate this global crisis. It's skeptic check, COVID conspiracy.
2: There is no cure for COVID 19 yet, and that's precisely what empowers the hucksters peddling fake ones. But one heavily marketed coronavirus cure in particular
4: raised our eyebrows. For just your daily life and your gums and your teeth and for regular viruses and bacteria, the patented nanosilver we have, the Pentagon has come out and documented and Homeland Security and said this stuff kills. The whole SARS corona family at point blank range. Well, of course it does. It kills every virus.
3: (laughs) When conspiracy theorist Alex Jones peddled colloidal silver toothpaste as a cure for coronavirus, it rang a bell with us. Colloidal silver had popped up in one of our episodes a couple years ago when we talked about the validity of celebrity endorsements of health products. Around that time, the actress Gwyneth Paltrow had gone on the Dr. Oz show to tout the benefits of colloidal silver as a general-purpose viral disinfectant. People think I'm insane, when I get on an airplane, when I get to my seat, I spray this all over my seat (laughs) and under my tongue um, because the research says that Colloidal silver really keeps viruses away. It, mm-hmm. It's a real viral repellent. Yep. So I use that a lot, especially when we're traveling. I spray the kids' seats. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just like, what is this crazy woman doing?
4: <laughs> this actually was
2: the first antibiotic. It was silver. While a viral disinfectant sounds pretty good right now, colloidal silver isn't the go-to solution solution. You know what colloidal silver products are made of? I'll well, think of pulverizing your earrings or your dental fillings or or maybe even a dime, and then suspending those tiny silver slivers in a liquid. There's just no scientific evidence that colloidal silver, whether you take it orally, inject it, spray it into your mouth, has antiviral, antibacterial, or antifungal properties. In fact, silver has no known purpose in your body. It's not even an essential mineral. I recommend keeping it either on your ears or in your jewelry box.
3: And yet, it is being touted as a cure. Now, when we did that show, we posed the question of why we would entrust our health to a celebrity with no medical credentials to Paul Offit, a professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the Pearlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, who is a doctor, and who had just written a book about why celebrities, or politicians or activists for that matter, are not our best sources of health information. But why we trust them anyway. Here's what he said.
4: Well, I think in part because we think we know them. Uh, you know, the celebrities are people that we see on the big screen or little screen. The same thing's true of politicians. And I think at some level, because they've been given a platform, they have influence. I mean, you, you look at who is used to sell products, invariably it's celebrities, because... People think that they know them. I mean, they don't pick experts on that particular product to sell them. They pick celebrities. So we feel that we know them, and consequently,
2: we should listen to them. It's sort of like your next-door neighbor. I mean, if they were telling you, you know, something that might be relevant to your health, would you listen to them if they, you know, they weren't actually medical doctors?
4: Yes, that's exactly who people do listen to, because they trust them. Whereas the the doctor or the clinician is seen as somebody a little more distant, more uh, formal,
2: We listen to celebrities, non-experts. As you say, they're selling snake oil, yes, perhaps, but they're also addressing things that people may not be able to get much better advice on. I hear lots of people who say, well, Seth, you're suffering from this, that, or the other. Look on the internet and you'll find that the problem is your doctor is having you, I don't know, take statins or something like that, that they, they find an easy solution to my problem. It's the internet, right?
4: Well, the internet is a source of great and awful information. And so the trick is how you sort it out. How do you sort out good from bad information? I mean, there, is certainly, there are certainly websites that, are, you know, that are, are managed by hospitals like the Mayo Clinic or Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that have really good information. Um, but people are seduced often by these websites which don't have good information, which often are selling something, which are often making promises that make little sense, that sound far too good to be true and are. But uh, we're seduced by that. These themes are
3: especially powerful during the coronavirus crisis. Celebrities, the internet, wondering whom to trust, the need for cures that you can't find anywhere.
2: All those ingredients are in the brew now, and we have charismatic persons or influencers who are trying to profit off the pandemic.
3: Joan Donovan is a research director at Harvard's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, who has been studying the toxic hucksterism in connection with the coronavirus.
1: Right now, what we're seeing especially is a bunch of scams, predatory lending, you know, as the economy suffers in the way that that it has been with the increasing unemployment, we're seeing lots and lots of financial scams of every kind of stripe you can imagine.
2: One of the scams, Joan, that you've been tracking is an app that promises to detect contact with a person infected with a virus. On the face of it, that sounds pretty helpful. I mean, that's what people are trying to do. What happens when you use this
1: app? If you were to download this app, you would then be locked out of your phone. It's a typical malware app or ransomware that says, here's how you set up a Bitcoin wallet and here's how you you pay to get your access to your phone back. This is incredibly dangerous in this very moment, especially as we're all isolating because if you are looking for symptoms of a disease, you end up downloading this thinking, maybe I can figure it out myself. Maybe you're afraid of going to the hospital. And so you really want to be sure that your symptoms are what you think they are. Losing access to your telephone could be deadly.
2: So there's a lot more to be lost here than just money or even files locks up your phone at a time when you need your phone. You know, another kind of scam that I've run into personally, isn't so much about somebody trying to get money from me. But just spreading false information, a friend of mine sent me a supposedly medically authentic method for me to self-test for the virus. You know, do I have it, do I not have it? And all I had to do was hold my breath for 10 seconds and then see if I coughed. And if I didn't, I was virus free. That would have been great. And this came from a, you know, a, a, not just random glob, this came from a, a trusted friend. Is this just, you know, maliciousness, just sort of jokey stuff?
1: No, I think that one was getting sent around in a chain email, and because it it had said the first lines of this was from a Stanford hospital, right? And so the idea is that it was a legitimate piece of information, and because the advice wasn't exactly contradictory or not harmful, people are engaging in what my colleague Irene Pasqueto talks about as just in case sharing. So just in case you didn't get this here's something that you, you could do to try to check yourself. When that becomes dangerous, we've seen other iterations of that that say drink a little bit of bleach to clear yourself. And of course, that is poison. And the idea that you could protect yourself with uh, what's already around us is something that we see permeate, you know, even during the cold and flu season. People want a quick fix. They want a quick way to treat this. And so it does play into both our desire to say, okay, it must be authoritative because it, quote unquote, came from Stanford, which it didn't. And then the second part of it is, well, it's easy enough, might as well try it.
2: But clearly hucksters are peddling cures for coronavirus. Government officials went after the prolific conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, who used his website and radio show to promote toothpaste that supposedly cured coronavirus. What was Jones claiming and why did the New York State Attorney General tell him to stop?
1: When it came to the Jones case around coronavirus, he was playing on the fear and the uncertainty of people. And this was in reaction to a nano silver supplement where he had stated in a video quote, the Pentagon has come out and documented and Homeland Security have said this stuff kills the whole SARS corona family at point blank range. And of course, there's no scientific basis for the claim that colloidal silver does kill coronavirus uh, or SARS. And so the FDA really had to step in in that that instance in order to make sure that uh, the financial scam that was being run here wasn't also going to contribute to people believing that they're protected in ways that they wouldn't.
2: And was it on that basis that the uh, uh, attorney general stepped in and said, you know, shut this down? I mean, you're, you're, you know, this is fraudulent advertising. Was that the legal basis for this?
1: I think the legal basis for telling someone not to market a product, right? So it's not saying you can't sell this product. It's really, you can't market your product this way. How do the sellers
2: reach their customers most often? I mean, uh, I get a lot of robocalls. What's the medium of choice?
1: One of the things that's been interesting to see around some of the work we've been doing on domain research is that COVID-19 and coronavirus are very unique keywords online. And so for a while, we were seeing a lot of people register brand new domains with those keywords And then the other things they would, you know, have in the domain would be coronavirus unemployment, coronavirus loan, coronavirus emergency relief. And so scammers were really thinking about, okay, how do I get the best search engine optimization out of this? How do I add a veneer of legitimacy here? And so we were seeing even ones that said coronavirus test kit, which we know there hadn't been a publicly available at-home testing kit So we saw a lot of action in domains in ways that we hadn't seen in the past. And then as the platform companies decided that they were not going to serve advertising about COVID-19 and coronavirus, we did see a shift in tactics where these fraudsters had started to post links directly into Facebook groups and directly into other pages and into replies on tweets even to try to get action on their links.
2: So... It sounds like, I mean, this This is more than just a matter of individual behavior, caveat, mTOR, you know, look, this is on you. Everybody knows that there's no cure for uh, the virus yet. There's no vaccine. So if you fall for a scam, you know, you're just being foolish. You don't see it that way.
1: No, no, definitely not. I think that even... You know, as I traverse this information hellscape that we're in, or the WHO's called it an, um, an infodemic, and health misinformation is different than political misinformation in the sense that it can get people to change their behaviors rather quickly. And because we're not operating with the same signal set that we would have operated with absent the pandemic, where we have a lot of new legitimate websites online and we have a lot of fake and fraudulent websites online and sometimes it's really difficult to tell the difference. I'll give you one example that uh, happened to a coworker of mine recently where uh, there was a text that made it seem like it was coming from his uh, health insurance company and it said click this link sign up and we will send you a test and that link was a, a malware link. It wasn't actually his his health insurance company. And so I can't blame people for falling into these traps. And I should say something more broad about misinformation in general, which is to say misinformation doesn't travel unless it tricks you. So, you know, it, it's not the case that, you know, people are just wading into this misinformation world and being like, I know it's misinformation, but I'm going to share it anyway a lot of times it is meant to fool you and it's good at fooling you because it, it dresses itself up as uh, news or science or with the veneer of authority. And so um, I don't fault anybody for falling into, into these scams, but at the same time, I, I wish there was a better way for us to authenticate and validate where information is coming from, especially when, the stakes are so high.
3: So, Seth, a lot of interesting things to say there about how profiteers prey on the vulnerable, certainly the most vulnerable, during a crisis.
2: Yeah, hardly unexpected. Whenever there's an opportunity you know, like this, uh, people who are trying to take advantage will try and take advantage. But there's even more, because you can throw into this heady brew of pandemic profiteering and lace in some conspiracy theories. Once again, Joan Donovan.
1: Right now we're tracking information around a conspiracy theory that 5G is causing COVID-19. So the introduction of this new technology is the thing that's actually harming people, which is false. But we're seeing it shared by uh, the anti-vaccination movement. And so there are political opportunities for different kinds of groups in this very moment. Now you mentioned
2: 5G. And it's known by many people that 5G, which, of course, is the, the new standard uh, for wireless communication, which will use higher frequencies and consequently and higher powers, actually. And people figure, oh, it's going to, you know, scramble their brains or something. This is part of a, a bigger picture. Is it just anti-government? What, what are the anti-vaxxers and the 5G guys have in common here?
1: It's a really good question. I think that we have to think more holistically and historically about the introduction of new technologies. So when we got the radio, people were afraid that radio waves were going to uh, harm them in some way. Think about the lore around don't stand close to the microwave, that somehow the microwave is, is, you know, radiating your liver, for instance, and cooking you alive. There are always going to be fears and rumors that pop up with the introduction of a new technology. But when we see these kinds of coalitions come together, we have to think, uh, what is the point they're trying to make? Especially when we look at the history of anti-vaccination, if you can offload the blame for a virus onto some other kind of explanation, then naturally getting a vaccine wouldn't help right? And so when we understand media manipulation and, and misinformation campaigns, we're often looking for that that moment. And, I, and I'll give one other example very quickly around we are going to have a, an enormous fight to get the borders back open. And we have been watching white nationalists, white supremacists really drill down into uh, the different theories about Uh, Different conspiracy theories about COVID-19 being a bioweapon that was an attack on the US. And all of this is laying the groundwork for a battle against reopening America's borders to any number of countries.
3: Joan Donovan is a research director at Harvard's Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy. Next, we venture deeper into the world of conspiracy theories, including one about the supposed origins of the coronavirus.
2: Can we think rationally during a global health crisis? It's Skeptic Check COVID Conspiracy on Big Picture Science. a lot of unsupported theories out there regarding the coronavirus, and in particular, where did this pathogen come from? Well,
4: this is what science tells us. So what we think is, is that this virus is a recombinant. It probably came from a bat virus, plus perhaps one of these viruses from the pangolin, it recombined. The genetic material came together. And then it probably spread in humans for a while. We don't know how long. It could have been months. could have been decades of this virus spreading and evolving in some other animal or humans. And then finally, just that one little mutation that occurred that allowed it to spread more rapidly.
2: We know that not just from the genetic sequencing of RNA or because we've studied coronaviruses for years, remember SARS and MERS were both members of the coronavirus family, or because pandemics just like the one we're experiencing have happened for centuries and been predicted for decades, but because of all of those things.
3: But it is true that questions remain about the origins of the novel coronavirus, such as which animal was its original host, a a bat or a scaly anteater called a pangolin. Scientists admit there are some gaps in the full picture. And remember, conspiracy theorists love a vacuum.
0: So the Bill Gates conspiracy theory holds that Bill Gates created, or at least is going to profit from, the COVID-19 virus for his own nefarious purposes. I'm Whitney Phillips. I'm an assistant professor in the Communication and Rhetorical Studies department in Syracuse University, and I study everything that's
3: terrible on the internet. Well, here's a rhetorical question for Dr. Phillips. Should we believe everything that's on the internet regarding the coronavirus? There is so much to cover. The internet has been buzzing lately, so let's dive in. Beginning with the 10,000 Facebook posts and millions of videos that say this about Bill Gates. Well, the claim is that
0: Bill Gates is responsible for COVID-19 and created it so that he could then profit from the inevitable vaccine.
2: So when you say that he created it, there's, uh, you know, presumably he didn't do this in his basement or in his garage, uh, that he, you know, had somebody do it. And I've heard the term the Peer Bright Institute. What is that?
0: Oh, I mean, okay. so. When it comes to this particular kind of conspiracy theory, the specifics get a little bit tricky because different people are spreading the story in different ways. And some people are really adhering to the details of what lab exactly produced the virus, while other people are just sort of generally speculating that Bill Gates is within a broader sort of cadre of bad actors trying to profit off of the virus. So there's not one single articulation of what the theory is. People are not uniform in their belief. The one uniforming uh, characteristic is that Bill Gates and or other people created this to cause chaos, confusion and to undermine Trump's presidency typically. But there's a whole range of tributaries that the conspiracy theory can take.
2: I have to say, I find it remarkable that you could even patent a virus, particularly since the the sequence, the genetic sequence from this virus was done by the Chinese. You would think that they would have patented it if anybody had.
0: Well, I mean, the the details of these kinds of conspiracies, not just this one, but all of them, not only are they variable, but oftentimes they don't matter to the story as much as the underlying subversion myth. And a subversion myth, that's a concept within folklore studies that talks about, it, it posits an evil, nefarious them that is out to get us. And Bill Gates is one among many of this nefarious them that is somehow out to undermine the American way of life, to make America ungreat again, um, et cetera. And so the, the specific details, while they're interesting to the story, that doesn't get to the heart of why these stories are so popular, why they're believed by such a wide swath of the, of the population. And that has to do with this underlying larger subversion myth of us versus them.
2: You know, this one, I mean, the, the whole premise here would seem to me to be suspect right from the beginning. I mean, Bill Gates starts Microsoft a long time ago when he was a kid, pretty much, and then in 2014, worth billions of dollars, he leaves it behind, gives it to somebody else to run, and he's been involved with philanthropy ever since. And in particular, his Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is working hard to eliminate malaria. Why would anybody think that he would want to you know, be involved in enabling a new pandemic.
0: Well, I mean, that supposes that there is logic to this. That when people believe and adhere to conspiracy theories, we would like to think that those conspiracy theories are inherently logical, and there is a very clear reason for why people believe this, this, and that, or latch onto this or that detail. But that's not actually how conspiracy theories work. It's more about the feeling in the world that there is this them. And so, no, of course, the conspiracy doesn't make any sense, but that's that's not actually how this form of storytelling works. There's actually an internet axiom that's really critical when approaching these kinds of stories known as Poe's Law. And that states essentially that you can't tell the difference between sincerity and satire online. And so while I have zero doubt that there are lots and lots of people who believe that this is true or believe some part of the story that maybe, maybe they don't believe that Bill Gates created the virus, but maybe they feel like Bill Gates along all of the other corporate elites, they're going to profit from it. That, that clearly some people believe in that. Um, it, it adheres to their sense of self. It makes their worlds make sense. But there also are going to be a number of people who are responding for the sake of responding, for the sake of piling on, for the sake of making themselves and their friends laugh. It's It's difficult to know exactly what you're looking at when you encounter these kinds of conspiracy theories online.
2: So, Whitney, why did this particular conspiracy come to your attention now.
0: I encountered this conspiracy theory uh, because it emerged out of a broader cluster of deep state and deep state adjacent conspiracy theories that from the very outset of the Wuhan outbreak in January, you started to see a lot of conspiracy theorists, particularly associated with the QAnon conspiracy theory that holds that Obama holdovers within the Trump administration are trying to undermine the Trump administration from within. That these proponents of that particular theory were speculating about the virus being having been created in a lab, the virus being basically a democratic plot to destroy the economy and thereby Trump's uh, 2020 reelection chances. And that some more extreme versions of that remained sort of siloed within far right extremist corners. But some iterations of that snaked their way into the Fox News orbit and became pretty common um, talking points on primetime television. This idea that maybe the virus was a real thing, maybe it existed in the world, but the Democrats were latching on to it essentially to destroy the economy and hurt Trump. So you have this whole gamut of this kind of conspiracy theorizing which follows a number of different trajectories, but it's the same basic idea.
2: It sounds like it's another example of a deep state idea, right?
0: A hundred percent, yes.
2: Okay. Now, you know, people love conspiracies, particularly, it seems to me, in the United States. I lived in Europe for a while, and, you know, it seemed to me that such ideas as we're talking about here would have been met with considerably more skepticism there. Is there something in the American culture that makes us more prone to such ideas?
0: Conspiracy theories are really common um, across demographics, across eras, across a strata of power. There is no one defining characteristic that makes a person more likely to believe in a conspiracy theory. We all have bought into something or other at some point in time. Some of those conspiracy theories are very much unhinged and dangerous, and some of them are less so. Some of them, in fact, are precedented historically. So it's difficult to say that there is a particular kind of American conspiracy theory, but there are two pretty common tropes within American conspiracy theorizing. And the first is the idea of the alien subversion myth. And the alien subversion myth goes back centuries and centuries, and it basically posits that there is some an alien other, so alien in the sense of, you know, immigrants or someone who's not white Christian person who is in the United States undermining what real America is in big scare quotes. And those were the most popular, common kinds of conspiracy theories throughout the 19th century. And Catherine Olmsted, um, who is a, she's done amazing historical work on conspiracy theories, talks a lot about that. The second kind of conspiracy theory that's very common in the United States really picked up steam in the mid 20th century is conspiracies about the government. And those emerged because the US government revealed itself to have been engaging in a number of actual conspiracies, sticking their their nose and their weaponry where it didn't belong and then lying about it, not giving the public the full accounting of things that were happening. So in the 60s, 70s, people really started to mistrust the government in part because the government had lied to them and for the first time the american public was seeing how and why so you have alien subversion myths and anti-government conspiracy ideas and with the deep state those two things collide you sort of put those two things together and that is what trump trades in and in many ways when you're talking about covid-19 and the conspiracy theories that swirl around that it is both of those conspiracies operating all at once that Oftentimes, when people talk about the deep state, that's thinly veiled anti-Semitism. So you're talking about, you know, subversion myths there. And then, of course, anti-government conspiracy theories, which is a little tricky when Trump is making those kinds of conspiratorial accusations. The conspiratorial call is coming from inside the White House. So that's a unique contour to our present moment. But these conspiracy theories about Bill Gates, about the deep state, they fit within literally centuries of narrative within the United States. And that's why their emergence at this moment isn't surprising at all. And that's why focusing on the specific details of the conspiracy sort of misses the forest for the trees. It's the forest that we need to think about. It's the forest that is so enduring over the generations. And that is really why it is so difficult to try to intervene with these kinds of conspiracy theories.
3: hear more about conspiracy theories regarding the pandemic, including why it's human nature to want to believe them.
2: Also, why throwing facts at a conspiracy theory simply doesn't stop it. As Mel Gibson explained to Julia Roberts in the film Conspiracy Theory.
3: Can you prove any of this? Huh.
4: No, absolutely not. A good conspiracy is um, an unprovable one. If you can prove it, I mean, they must have screwed up somewhere along the line, and then, if, if that's the case, we'll... They. They? Yeah.
0: They who?
1: They. Well, they. I, I, I don't know. That's why they call them they and, and them, you know.
3: That's all next as we consider how to think rationally during a public health crisis in this episode of Skeptic Check, COVID Conspiracy on Big Picture Science.
2: been talking in this show about the misinformation, disinformation, and fake cures being peddled regarding the coronavirus. But that conversation brought us to consider another type of misinformation, and it's a big one. Conspiracy theories. Supposed explanations depended on secret malevolent instigators.
3: We are deep, deep into this. So rather than coming up for air or daylight, let's continue our exploration into the murky depths as led by Assistant Professor of Communications and Rhetorical Studies, Whitney Phillips.
2: So, Whitney, backing up and and taking your point there that this is part of a larger picture, is it the human psychology that we just want to think that something terrible, like the coronavirus, happened for a reason? It wasn't just a, a random thing, something more deliberate than, say, you know, the mutation of a virus in a bat that jumped species you know that that has no bad guy,
0: right. I heard, and i and I wish I could place it more specifically, but in response to um, Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories. I heard something that resonated with me. And it was this idea that having a villain is more psychologically reassuring than having no explanation at all. And I'm, I'm a little remiss to make kind of broad speculative claims about why people think the way they do. I, I'm, not, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not interviewing the people who hold these beliefs. But human beings, generally speaking, we do engage the world through narrative and through coherent narrative. And when you have random events that aren't connected in any kind of coherent narrative way, that is, that's difficult to process. And so it makes sense that people would map coherence onto particular events, even if the details they use to do that are bonkers and end up creating a sort of bonkers narrative. that is for that person, based on their experience, based on their training as a citizen within the world, based on a whole host of things, those theories can make sense to them, even if they are absolutely disconnected from empirical reality.
2: So what is it about this crisis, this COVID-19 crisis, that makes us vulnerable to such theories? It seems to spawn them.
0: In some, in some ways, we're living in highly precedented times that uh, conspiracy theories have existed long before this and have even taken similar forms to to what we're experiencing now, not with COVID-19, but with subversion myths and government conspiracies and all of that. That's That's existed before. What is unique about our present moment is the way that our information ecosystem functions. And in particular, we are dealing with essentially 50 or 60 years of what's known as asymmetric polarization. So the process by which the left and right have sort of have developed different norms, have operated under different media ecosystems for generations. Um, And on the right, things have gotten increasingly polarized and even extremist in some ways. And there are lots of reasons why that is the case. But what it results in is you have a cleaving within the United States between one group of people who is being fed off of certain kinds of information, certain kinds of media, and another group of people who is getting different information from different groups. And one set of that information happens to be unmoored from empirical reality and tends often to be explicitly anti-scientific and anti-establishment and any kind of or official explanation of something is suspect and you couple that with how our attention economy works that people are able to engage in what Anna Merlin she wrote a great book about conspiracy theories. She describes as conspiracy entrepreneurship that people make money off of these conspiracy theories and Social platforms are able to monetize and, in some cases, implicitly incentivize the uh, propagation of of these kinds of narratives. So everything in our information ecosystem is working towards the spread, the out-of-control spread of these kinds of narratives. And uh, it really speaks to the fact that our systems are broken and we have to find a way to fix them or else our entire lives will be one crisis such as this after another
2: it seems that what really helps these kinds of theories to propagate and promulgate is is the availability of the internet that uh, you know suddenly everybody can shout and be heard by millions
0: it's not just that everybody can shout and be heard by millions it's that algorithms incentivize certain kinds of voices and certain kinds of narratives that algorithms are not designed to reward People speaking in sort of moderate tones and making, you know, uh, reasonable claims about the world. Algorithms are designed to spread the most sensationalized, outrageous, offensive information possible. Um, And conspiracy theories certainly fall into that category. So the fact that conspiracy theories make social platforms money they are good for social platforms business, has has really contributed to an environment in which these kinds of extreme narratives have a lot of purchase within the attention economy. So it's not an accident that we have the COVID-19 conspiracy theories we have. We've, in a lot of ways, been set up for this for many, many years.
2: Sometimes, Whitney, science theories sound a little bit improbable. I mean, (laughs) the idea that uh, that this disease would come from bats, that bats would all be sick with this thing and it doesn't seem to bother a bat. And then it jumps to humans. I mean, that sounds like, uh, you know, a a second rate science fiction film plot.
0: Well, I mean, scientific knowledge is is different than conspiracy theorizing in that within science, you look at the available uh, evidence and then you come to a conclusion. And with conspiracy theorizing, you start with the conclusion and then you find evidence to support it. And so people who are already inclined to believe that the deep state is up to no good or what, whatever the, the underlying subversion myth is, it is very easy to then find corroborating evidence or what looks like corroborating evidence for that particular claim. But it's, it's science inverted in a lot of ways.
2: And what tools can you give to someone, somebody who's not a scientist, you know, they're, they're exposed to all this information, good and bad, what tools would you give to them to help them arrive at the truth?
0: The problem is that the tools that we would use to engage in critical thinking and to try to suss out evidence, that that those tools are also subject to miss and disinformation. I mean, when you search a particular term within Google, if you encounter, for example, the, the phrase deep state or just Bill Gates, COVID-19, Google, for one thing is, is, I mean, it functions as a search platform, but it's an advertising company. I mean, that's what it does. And so it, the way that its algorithms work, it's going to send you down the rabbit holes it thinks you want to go down that based on previous searches of that kind, it's gonna serve up certain kinds of information. And people think, okay, well, if I Googled it and these are the top five search results and I look through those search results, then I can feel pretty confident that I've done my homework. That's not how algorithms work. That's not how Google works. And so even when you're giving people the tools of critical thinking and sort of traditional media literacy skills, people can still get led astray because algorithms, which are totally opaque and you don't know what an algorithm is not showing you, can suggest to you that, well, here, here are some here are some breadcrumbs, why don't you follow those? Ooh, here are some more breadcrumbs, why don't you follow those? And so it's actually sending people to do their homework can be dangerous. It can result in exactly the opposite consequence than, than what we might want. And so really it's less about what kinds of tools can you give to everyday social media users And more a question of how can we get social platforms to take responsibility for what gets posted on their platforms? So, Whitney,
2: uh, if you were talking with a neighbor there in upstate New York and they said, well, you say that this is all conspiracy theory, that this is nonsense, they might say, well, how do we know? How do we know whether it's a conspiracy or not? What would you say to that?
0: I mean, that's the trick because, so subversion myths in particular, uh, this idea that it's this evil nefarious them uh, that are out to get us. The problem is that by pushing back against that conspiracy, the structure of the conspiracy sort of loops you, the debunker, into the conspiracy itself, that denying the existence of the deep state is exactly what someone within the deep state would say. And so when you are trying to respond to someone who believes one of these theories, it's very likely that your debunks, your attempts to push back are not only going to not convince them, but that they will actually reinforce the belief because now you've become one of them.
2: So that's the beauty of a conspiracy theory, is it not? I mean, uh, you know, if, if you contest it, all you're doing is reinforcing the people who think there's a
0: conspiracy. Yes, exactly. And But the problem is that our impulse is to try to correct false uh, belief. And we, we feel often, particularly within journalism, there's this impulse. If you throw enough facts at somebody, eventually you're going to convince them but the problem is that those facts can so sort of splash back in really unpredictable ways and it's there's a, a a concept known as the boomerang effect which states that if somebody really mistrusts a particular source of information when that source denies a claim that only serves as evidence of the claim. So if you think the New York times is fake news and the New York times debunks the bill Gates conspiracy theory, guess what? That now serves as proof. That's now something you can post to say here. See these liars are saying that it's false and therefore it must be true. So these, these things are very, very difficult to respond to. And in the case of COVID-19, we're not talking about an idle, narrative sort of disconnected from everyday experience. I mean, people's lives depend on us being able to communicate uh, true, accurate information. But because of the way that conspiracy theory works, because of the way that belief works, that's really, really difficult to do. And people's lives are at risk as a result of it.
2: So how do you fight it? I mean, what do you say? Isn't that the whole thing? I mean, it's really difficult to come up with anything that you can say that's going to be effective other than in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, I mean I think the trick is try is being aware of how easy it is to splash back information and to avoid doing that. That that it is the impulse to scream about how Bill Gates did not create COVID nineteen and he is not he didn't do it to profit off of the vaccinations, that might feel good in the moment, or making fun of people who believe these kinds of things might feel good in the moment and it might be reifying, reaffirming to your friends who are also frustrated and bored out of their minds stuck in their house. But the fact is that those things don't work. And in fact, could make the problem worse by reinforcing the belief of people who loop you into the them. And so at the very least, by not engaging in the worst kinds of practices, you can minimize the amount of pollution that's produced, even if you can't personally intervene in somebody's own belief structures. And at times, not contributing to flows of polluted information is the best that we individually can do.
2: So, finally Whitney, does it matter if people believe outlandish conspiracies, if they, you know, if they want to believe uh, in Bigfoot or whatever? I mean, you know, let them believe it whatever. It doesn't really matter too much, but here we're fighting a pandemic. So, if you had to explain why such conspiracy theories are either irrelevant or actually you know, harmful to our response to the pandemic, what do you say to that?
0: Oh, they're absolutely harmful to our response to the pandemic. Part of the reason that we are in the situation that we're in with 40,000 plus people having died is because for the first six weeks, eight weeks of the outbreak, there were so many people in the United States and abroad, but focusing specifically on the US, so many people who were primed through a lifetime of a particular kind of conspiratorial thinking to mistrust public health experts, to mistrust science, and to mistrust journalists when those groups of people started to say, okay, we've got a problem here, we need to socially distance, we need to start engaging in these kinds of practices to protect ourselves and our communities. Too many people saw that information and interpreted it as evidence of a conspiracy that that they were going to resist with all their might because they didn't want the deep state to tell them what to do. And if those belief structures had not been in place, it may have been that more people would have been willing to start physically distancing or just listen to public health experts. But that's not how it played out. And we are dealing with the consequences and we will continue dealing with the consequences of a political system in which a significant number of the population looks at something that an expert says or that a scientist says and say, That must be a hoax of some kind. I don't have to listen. In fact, I'm going to do the opposite.
2: Whitney Phillips, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Whitney Phillips is a professor in the Communication and Rhetorical Studies Department at Syracuse University who introduced herself to us as someone who studies everything that's terrible on the internet.
2: Well, the big picture here is that there are people who are taking advantage of this situation. Hardly surprising. It happens in every crisis. This particular one, which affects everybody, absolutely everybody, you know, it's kind of disillusioning (laughs) to to think that your felon human, who's just as vulnerable as you are, is, is trying to take advantage of this score a buck or get personal information, whatever they're trying to do.
3: You know, when Dr. Donovan was talking about how information moves, false information moves, it really has the behavior of a virus. And like a virus, misinformation spreads only if it's successful at infecting you.
2: Yeah, right. If you don't get infected, you're not spreading it because you probably don't believe it.
3: What are some tips for helping people to spot some of this misinformation and some of these phony cures and things like that?
2: First thing I'd suggest is they go on the web and look up Carl Sagan's baloney detection kit.
3: Hang on a minute though. We just heard that the web is part of the problem. So you to maybe you could summarize Sagan's baloney detection kit for us.
2: It's it's pretty good. You know, it's it says some obvious things like does this sound plausible? But you know, some of the specific points are maybe not so obvious. Like, does anybody else say this other than you know your favorite website or whatever? Right? That's that's one thing. If if you're getting it only from one source, you know, you should be a little suspicious. The second thing is, yes. You know, uh, everybody can be wrong, including scientists. But on the other hand, scientists can be expert. And uh, you should ask yourself, are the people who are suggesting this, are they experts? Or are they, you know, the guy next door? That kind of thing. Final thing, can you falsify it? Is it something that you can somehow prove it's not true? Because if they say, oh, no, well, I know it's true, but, uh, you know, there's no way you can prove that. That's very, very suspect
3: yeah that's it. other idea that came through with these conspiracy theories. The idea that you can never prove them wrong because if you throw more facts at them, then they just say that you don't understand the complexity or you're part of the problem, you're part of the deep state, and so it doesn't respond to evidence the way that science does, so that's one big difference
2: It's very recursive that indeed you know if you don't agree, you're part of the problem. As a regular listener to this program, you're aware that there's a lot of misinformation out there about this outbreak. We've identified some in this episode, but you can be sure that more is on its way. Please remind others that if what they're hearing about this virus sounds incredible or they're unsure what they should be doing to protect themselves, check the facts with reputable sources. Your local public health service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Follow the science.
3: We could not do the show without senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thanks again to them for continuing to work on the show from their homes. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
2: Thanks also to financial support from Reno Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that supports science by publicly explaining its work. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also a big thanks to our listeners.
3: Your ears have been attuned to our monthly episode of Critical Thinking, Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science. This episode, COVID Conspiracy. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you'll find links to our guests there as well. You know about the uh,
2: suppressed transmission, of course. No? Ah, well, way back there, when they giving us that one giant step for mankind bit, another astronaut's in the background yelling his fool head off, saying, what the hell is that? Well, NASA cuts him off just like that. But those of us with the right kind of radios, you know what I mean? We got enough of it. The gist of it with that is a giant spacecraft over in the other crater looking at them. Oh, it all begins to leak out then that the space program's just one giant big cover-up. We've been on the moon since the 50s. You want to know how we got there, right? I tell you, anti-gravity technology, we stole it from the Nazis after the end of World War II. It's perfectly obvious.
0: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.